Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. Uh, welcome, everyone. I, I tried my best there to look surprised, as Phil um, usually would, um, just so that you're not let down by that. Uh, Phil is unable to join us this evening, so you have uh, myself. So, um, yeah, welcome for, um, for for those who are new to uh, to Critical Witness, and uh, welcome back to those who are usually listening or will be listening to uh, a future recording. Uh, so tonight um, I'm going to be joined by Nathan Bosa, and I, I should actually check with you, Nathan, whether I'm going to let me get you up on screen, whether I actually put out, I forgot to, to ask how I pronounce your second name, and I was going on the countdown, I was thinking, I forgot to ask you to say it, so uh, I, I apologise if I've done um, I've done harm to that. That's uh, right, it's Bosa, but I've, you Bossa. know, people say different things. You're pretty close to be fair, I've heard Bosa. <laughs> Some different stuff, so <laughs> I, was, I wasn't too bad. Well, anyway, yeah. welcome. Uh, really looking forward to chatting with you. Um, and I, I guess very quickly, just I guess in a minute, give us a rundown about uh, you know, your journey to where we are today, like how long you've been a Christian, and a little bit about what you're up to nowadays, and then we can get into the sort of nitty and gritty of the, the sort of history of science and religion. Is that all right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, well, my name's Nathan Bosso. Um, I've been a Christian um, since birth, really. So my parents are pastors of church um, that I go to. I'm in Mitcham, it's called Eden Pentecostal Church. Um, and I kind of grew up as a musician. So my background is as a musician. So in the arts, uh, I should say I'm based in London as well, um, Croydon area, which is technically not London, but I just say it's London anyway. But um, <laughs> London Borough, London Borough. London Borough, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So um, bit, well, uh, my kind of background is that as, as a musician, as, as a bass player, um, and my kind of my family were musicians as well, and, and stuff like that. So that kind of um, kind of history. Yeah, I went to study music at university, um, two thousand and eleven, maybe. I think so. So it's like a good ten years now. And then I worked as a kind of musician for quite a while, mainly in London, but I did some other work with a couple of artists and bands and stuff like that. I mean, and just various things for a number of, of years. And then uh, in short, you know, brief story, how I kind of switched to the kind of um, doing what I'm doing now as, as a PhD student in the history of science and religion um, was was really at the end of university. Um, it's actually quite a weird story, but I, I watched randomly on YouTube. I came across, when I was at my um, university home, I came across this video by um, a channel called Veritasium. Um, Derek Muller, the Science Channel, which yeah, many people will probably know, and it was this, this, the video was called something like um, "Can you go faster than the speed of light?" And I watched that video for no reason at all. I had no interest in physics up until then, and quite literally, that video kind of got me interested, um, quite quite specifically in in questions to do with science. Um, from then, I just kind of delved more and more into these kind of things, and, I, and then I started to think about my faith in relation to science um and then this notion of conflict um which was very you know very common i'd heard it um growing up 
um, in terms of evolutionary theory, dinosaurs and all that stuff. I think all those questions start to compile from you know 2014 to about 2017. So I was studying at home on my own whilst um, I was a musician full time. And eventually 2017, I basically just decided that I wanted to reverse my roles because I got so engaged in studying you know, science, theology, philosophy, history. And I decided to do a master's degree at Edinburgh University online, a course called Philosophy, Science and Religion. And then from there, I discovered that history was really an area that I wanted to kind of understand these things. So that's how I ended up at UCL, where I currently am, essentially doing my PhD um, in the history of science and religion. That's basically it in short. <laughs> Great. No, it's, it's cool. It's, it sounds like an interesting journey from uh, from musician to historian of science. <laughs> what um, did you... Um... I guess in terms of like making making that decision did you what what gave you was there any sort of you had any caution about going into um sort of exploring science in detail and you know, were you concerned about how that would affect um you know your faith um you know whether there was any conflict between between science and christianity or um were you just open to kind of exploring and i think for me yeah personally i was open to exploring but as we were talking about before, um, because not many of my friends um, were kind of into it, I felt quite alone, I, I might say, um, in going into it. Um, and even, you know, for my parents, it's not something that they um, necessarily kind of delved into. So it was, it was a bit difficult for them to even understand. Um, so so I, I, I wanted to go into it. I was really kind of interested, but it was a bit of a um, a bit of a lonely journey in a sense um but yeah I think that I think that's really yeah um the conflict stuff yes to an extent I mean I the, some of the first videos that I was watching was actually the whole creation evolution debate so especially particularly young earth creationists um versus you know how how, how it's typically typically termed young earth creationists versus evolutionists and obviously that as you know, it's a, it's a whole thing to unpack. Um, but from then, I kind of discovered that there were more thinkers um, outside of that debate. So you know, Christian thinkers like John Lennox is you know is an obvious example, and William Lane Craig, so forth and so on. So um, yeah, yeah, I say that's kind of the general journey. That that I I, I think I just want to answer some questions is the key thing. I, I just yeah. really want to ask some questions then. So I kind of just try to push through. <laughs> No, essentially, I mean, I can sympathise with. I think, uh, I think for any Christian, often, and not necessarily just Christians as well, but when you want to kind of explore one particular area in in depth, it can often be quite lonely because even within the church, you might not. Even though I, I get, I, I've always hoped you know someone is interested in sort of theology, philosophy, and primarily ethics. Mm. Very rarely, you know, you think Christians really want to be. You should be at the forefront of you know of, of exploring these topics. Mm. But you actually very seldom come into contact pe with people who have similar interests. Right, and right. so, you know, you do often feel very lonely. So just to say, it's not just with the people, historians, it's, it's, I think it's a lot, a lot of areas that I think Christians, uh, until they actually find themselves at the university and other people who might be studying at the university, but actually within the church often, which is, um, you know, is, 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 is not always ideal. And I think it does, does depend what kind of, um, you know, kind of church you're in, what area you're in um yeah, you know where, where you live about the light likelihood of that but um you know like you i grew up in south london as well and not a, a hotbed necessarily of sort of christian sort of um you know intellectualism and and, and interest in history philosophy and ethics and 
those, those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I can I, I, I can sympathise with that. I guess it would be interesting. What what talked to, already sort of talked about how you go into the history of science. What what is the history of science for people that haven't don't, don't necessarily know? That's a difficult question. History <laughs> um, of science is um, trying to um, how 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 is best to define it? I think the issue of trying to um, talk about the history of science is that science itself isn't one thing, um, and it's never really been one thing. So when you when you know someone asks a a historian about science, we always kind of hesitate because. For us, you know, we see history as evolving over time. So, uh, in a if, in a sense, history history of science, um, you say trying to trying to kind of understand, you know, uh, the, the human knowledge in terms of, um, you say, discoveries that human human beings have made and inventions um, and all of that stuff. But that's an inadequate definition, I would say. So, the kind of modern definition of 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 science is like systematic knowledge of the modern world but that wasn't the same that wasn't the definition of 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 science say in the middle ages um yeah whereas in the middle ages the understanding of science was general organized knowledge so with that being said that's why i said it's quite difficult to kind of understand what the history of science is um but yeah i think we'd have to kind of unpack that kind of as as one goes yeah, so you're you're kind of more focused. So if I understand, you're studying um, George Campbell. Um, mm. Could you? It'd be interesting to hear a little bit. About, all I know is that he's a British sort of polymath, and we can talk a bit about polymaths. Mm. I have a real interest in, in polymaths. So I imagine you you will as well. Um, so I, I guess it'd be interesting. What 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 made you want to explore the life? You know, the, the, the views and things of, of George Campbell. Um, and was he a Christian? Like what? Who is he? Tell it would be interesting to find out a bit more about him. Um, yeah, George. Uh, he was the eighth. He was known as the eighth Duke of Argyll. Um, so he was an arist aristocrat in the nineteenth century, a British aristocrat in the nineteenth century, a Scottish um, one, I should say, in particular, Pres Presbyterian um, Church of Scotland. And yeah, he was a, a polymath in so in the nineteenth century Britain. Polymaths were becoming quite rare. Um, it was a time where specialism was becoming the norm um one could say uh, but he was a polymath in the sense that he was involved in numerous areas so um as an aristocrat um and someone who was interested in the sciences um, and, and as a christian he was involved in um everything from ornithology so study of birds um to engineering feats even though he didn't necessarily do engineering himself but he provided he provided spaces um you could say institutional support to um en engineering feats in places like um um india which brings in questions of the empire of course um he actually played a really critical role um in the development of of british india um from the right. 1860s onwards um he was involved in geology so ornithology and geology were probably his main two areas um, and then things like evolutionary theory, he also got involved in from about 1850 onwards. Um, anthropology, which is, you could say, the study of humankind and, and human culture, human beings and human culture. Um, uh, and what else? The comparative study of religion he was in, involved in, um, trying to understand like, the origin of, of, of religions, essentially. 
And so, yeah, just multiple areas of, of kind of science. And he was also a politician on top of that. Um, <laughs> so he's a bit of a difficult character to study, to be honest, because because he did so many things, it's really quite challenging to, um, you know, pin down one particular thing. Um, and I have to like often leave out a lot of what he did. But yeah, polymath in the 19th century, um, a Christian polymath in the 19th century who um, got involved in all these, he considered himself a philosopher more so um, than a scientist, I would say. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, being a rich Victorian guy really did allow you to uh, to explore all your interests, didn't it? And um, it's fascinating, like you, know, um, like you said, unfortunately, we don't, we don't really get many polymaths anymore not at least in mm. the i guess but, but just for people who are polymaths you know people who contribute sort of new knowledge to multiple different areas and like nathan you, you like you were saying isn't it i mean now everything's very specialist you know you become a mm. biologist you're not just a biologist you uh you know you focus on a particular minute area of biology um and so it's much more difficult isn't it because there's so much knowledge around as well like any yeah. area you sort of moves slightly out of your area and you're like gosh i've got like 10 you know i've got 200 years worth of knowledge to try and you know to, to try and understand before <laughs> I try and contribute anything new um yeah. whereas I guess going back 100 100 plus years mm. 150 plus years it wasn't quite you know things were you know you people were find, identifying and finding out new things at quite a rapid pace yeah, it must have yeah. been such a a great time to be to have the resources and the 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 interest to really um you know to to, to do that must have been must have been amazing I mean, it was it was quite difficult for him. I would say it was it was there's good and bad points, but um 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 for him because yeah, as I said at that time, of course, he was becoming um quite a rarity because there was such an explosion of of knowledge, at least going by traditional you know history of science um in in this area. There was such an explosion of knowledge that it was becoming difficult for one person. So you know what we see today was becoming a reality in the second half of the nineteenth century. Um, when these new fields were completely opening up. And, and again, a, a lot of that was to do with the fact that in, in Britain, at least the British Empire was um, so expansive at that time um, that it could do these investigations across the world, whereas obviously other parts of the world were not able to do that. Um, and so, and he was, he, was, he was himself certainly a part of that kind of tradition. So not just British science, but, you know, science within, within the empire. Um, but it did allow him to, um, as you say, contribute new forms of, of, of knowledge or new ways of thinking um, um, that maybe a specialist at that time um, might not have been able to see. And that's what he was trying to do. He was more interested in, like, the, philosoph in the philosophy that kind of underpinned the science um, and how that all related to him, him as a Christian, how that all related to kind of theology and Christianity and belief in God. So, you know, a lot of what he was doing, he was trying to kind of relate that back to his faith in the end. Right. What have you, I, mean, I guess I've interested, I mean, he seems like quite a, he seems obscure in a sense, like obviously history of science is so broad uh, and, and, and wide. Um, what, what, what made you want to focus on on him? You know, someone that probably 99.999% yeah. yeah. of people have never heard of. And I guess uh, as well, uh, on top of that like what have you what have you learned like what what's been what, mm. what's been sort of valuable in terms of this of this sort of study studying him i'd be interested to know well yeah no i i i came into him almost accidentally to be honest um with as you'll probably be aware of you know when you're trying to find a, a 
PhD subjects, you need to find something niche um, that you can kind of focus on in your field. Um, so when I was doing my master's, I was kind of looking through the historical literature. Um, and I was interested in, as with, you know, many Christians, evolution is, you know, the big thing that, you know, Christians are, um, you know, either concerned about or not concerned about, or whatever, you know, you, um, you kind of understand where I'm going. And with that, and, you know, most people are aware of that. Um, same, so it was the same thing for me. I was really interested in understanding kind of the history of evolutionary theory. Um, and George Douglas Campbell, the eighth Duke of Argyle, is quite a prominent figure in those debates um, because he right. was a contemporary of, of Darwin, friend of Darwin, and they um, debated and discussed all of this type of stuff. They had, you know, slightly different views, um, but they were, weren't antagonistic towards each other in, in that sense. They were good friends. Um, so yeah, it was. I, I kind of just saw his name, you know, propping up every now and again when I was reading the literature. So when I was reading um, books by historians of science and religion, and then I, you know, recognized, okay, so this guy is around. Um, nobody's done, you know, comprehensive work on him, so I can use him um, as a case study to understand evolution. And then when I actually, you know, started working on him, I found that he was a polymath after I had discovered. Um, his link to evolution. So the polymath part was just complete, completely by accident. I had no idea that was even, you know, going to be <laughs> what I studied. But it's been useful in the sense, oh, well, useful and challenging. Um, useful in the sense that because I don't really have a particular area that I focus on. You know, some people are historians of biology or historians of physics or you know something in particular or anthropology. Or, or, or you know whatever that the case might be I can't really say that about myself because because he was a polymath and because there was not really anything he kind of specialized on so for me it's more a general ish picture um of the history of science um, and religion the challenge with that as you rightly stated is that it's so there's so much to, to uncover that it's almost impossible kind of to feel like you have a grasp on it all um and obviously as a you know I've only been doing this for about two or three years now um, as a PhD student. So I still feel like I'm, you know, a baby in the grand scheme of things. You know, there are professors who've been doing this for like, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and and here I am, you know, studying this polymath and <laughs> trying to cram as much knowledge as, as I can get in. Um, so it's, it's, it's useful and it's challenging at the same time. Yeah, no, I mean, and I guess you'll get all those skills to kind of develop your own area of expertise as you move you move forward what well, I, I guess i'd be interested what was in terms of was anything unique about his views of of um how you know evolution like natural selection um evolution by natural selection and darwin kind of affected his his view of christianity of, of god um obviously because a lot of people you know you've got people like alfred Wallow, um alfred russell wallace he was a christian who co-discovered uh, you know, yeah, he actually, wasn't you know, a Christian, however, was was he not a Christian? No, he wasn't a Christian. See, I've um, always I always thought he was. So there you go. That's that's uh, that's the historian okay. correcting me there. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'd always I, I I'm sure I'd read somewhere that Alfred Russell Wallace was He's, a was a was a Christian. Uh, was, but um, absolutely, I'm yeah. Oh, he was a he was a he was a theist, but not a Christian. He was right. a spiritualist, let's say. So oh, okay. Right. Some sort of thing out there, but he, he certainly wasn't a Christian, a traditional Christian. Okay. Mm. So that's interesting, though, because I've definitely read several things where he's he's right. described as a as a as a Christian, but web, uh, probably websites. So uh, ah, that'll, that'll be interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that that that'll be interesting. So thank you for for that. 
Mm. Um, but but again, I guess moving on to like what how, you know himself as a Christian, like what did he did it change his views? Did it challenged his views. Like oh, okay. um, did it did he see it as a as a sort of conflict with his beliefs or something that sort of supplemented? Evolutionary theory. Um, this is where it gets obviously, you know, really, really complicated because there are so many views when when Darwin obviously, and, and Alfred Russell Wallace, well, when Darwin publishes his work, but obviously, as you said, Alfred Russell Wallace was the kind of co-discoverer of, of evolution, evolutionary theory. Um, for So for Argyle, um, he didn't have so much of a problem with the theory in general. Um, he had the same problem that loads of people had with it that the vast majority of people had with it was that the process of natural selection um couldn't explain the entire diversity of animals um, and humans and obviously as a theist the other option for many theists was theistic evolution so one could obviously be a christian and accept evolutionary theory um and just suggest that obviously god was behind the mechanism of evolution which is exactly what um, 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 the Duke of Argyle did. So he was ha happy to accept the theory. The only other distinction that he made was that he felt that um, humans and animals were separate. So humans right. um, uh, we, the, humans did extend back um, beyond, let's say, the traditional Protestant view of about you know five to six six thousand years ago, six to ten thousand years ago. However, however one wants to frame it, he was happy to see an antiquity antiquity with man so you know extending back for many many years um um i've lost my train of thought now <laughs> um no so no yeah so go on yeah well he yeah so he was he was um happy to see that but yeah as i said he he want he wanted to have um god essentially in the mix um, right but it was also yeah that i think that's the that's the main stuff with him so this is kind of a kind of modern well, at least in the UK, I think um, you look know, at sort of survey data as most uh, a lot of Christians in terms mm. of evolution don't really see it as an issue. They just sort of it sounds like you add God to it. You know, there was yes, this process, but actually uh, it was guided by 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 God. Um, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. through its sort of causally and. Um, oh so. yeah, and I should say yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say as well. Um, for, yeah, sorry, the origin of 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 life as well was that obviously. Um, another aspect so obviously for him the idea that the origin of life could be explained via this nat naturalistic process was obviously a reason why he could kind of implement god into the mix so right. that was the other part of it as well which again m you know most you know pretty much all theists said that as well um so nothing too unusual there yeah oh i can't remember it was it was a priest i can't remember i can't remember the name but they they the way they kind of described it, a victorian priest it was like you know god created the world to create itself uh mm. they, they kind of understood that kind of unfolding um you know through, yeah through, through through that process quite um, yeah yeah um i guess you've you said the word conflict so i'm sort of easy to sort of segue into um i think a lot of people uh, Christians and and, and non-Christians do see his, you know through history that there has been this this um, well they're led to believe that there is this sort of historical conflict between um, yeah. Christian Christianity and, and and science and uh, you know, if I'm not mistaken it's sort of but that that they call it uh, historians of science call it the conflict thesis <laughs> don't they yeah. um, and that yeah. was it was two guys with John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White. 
right. um, were kind of responsible in their in their books of promoting this this conflict between science on the one hand and, and theology yeah, specific, yeah. specifically mm-hmm. Christi- Christianity. What um, it, you know, in terms of your understanding sort of, 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 of Christianity and science throughout throughout history, is that is there any sort of um, truth to that, or or you know, has has is, is theology you know, has theology historically been at war with uh, with uh, with Christianity, or was that not necessarily well, the case? That's the that's the, you know the big question. That's you know a large part of the reason why so many historians got into this field. Um, and there's, there's a lot to say because there's a lot of research that's now been done. Um, the first thing I would say, um, and I can kind of expand on this, is that um, um, Andrew Dixon White and John William Draper, um, it was used. To, it, we used to kind of historians used to think that they were the people that invented the um, conflict thesis between science and Christianity. Turns out that's not necessarily the truth. Um, and one of my friends who, who might be watching, might not be, I'm not not too sure. Um, academic colleague called James Ungariani who has probably done the most recent research on this where he revises that view and he's showing that um, these two um, figures um, who are university lecturers in in America um, were not actually the constructors of this narrative. This narrative had been popular um, or it had been around before these two. Um, They were actually trying to construct a, a harmony thesis actually between science and Christianity but in the process of doing that what they did was try to drop all the negative aspects of science and Christianity. And most people basically took that part of the book, took the conflict aspects of the book, and almost neglected the harmony part of the book that they were actually trying yeah. to promote. And that's what's led to um, our kind of understanding of the kind of conflict thesis now. Their books happen to be the most popular for yeah. promoting that. But they they themselves were liberal Christians, um, um, they had slightly different views, as James Ungirani would be able to explain much, much better. Um, Draper's book, which came out in the 1870s, um, Draper was more interested in going back to um, a sort of Protestant Reformation, rationalist Christianity. Um, right. Whereas Andrew Dixon White, who was, um, uh, he, he um, him and Ezra Cornell were the founders of Cornell University right. um, in 1865, I think it was um was more of a liberal christianity in, in the kind of feelings realm so for him um he was all about kind of progressive christianity um and this kind of feelings type um element to kind of christianity so J- james ungariani usually says that draper was but draper christianity was a thing of the head and for um andrew dixon white christianity was a thing of the heart um right. but either way they were both liberal Christians. Um, their their narratives of conflict in their popular books in eighteen in eighteen in the eighteen seventies and the eighteen nineties um, were taken up by atheists, um, secularists, towards the end of the nineteenth century and into the twentieth century. And it was really these people. One of the main culprits being um, Charles Bradlaugh, um, who was one of the. In fact, he was the most prominent atheist in the 19, late nineteenth century. And wow. he became an MP for Northampton in the 1880s, but he was denied his seat because he was a proclaimed atheist until about 1886. So there's a whole dispute there. Uh, so just like you have, you know, your Richard Dawkins today and kind of the really popular names, Charles Birdlaw was like the equivalent, you could say, in that right. period. And he was really a person that promoted, well, there, was, there were loads of them, but he was one of the people took took the ideas 
of of you know Draper and White, at least the conflict part of their book, not the harmony part, um, and promoted it. And that's one, at least one of the reasons where this kind of conflict thesis develops from. There's there's yeah. much to it. As to the, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just to say that one of the things I've always found really fascinating is the role the Reformation played because right. yeah. a lot of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of um, the 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 anti-science um, kind of common common myths that we hear are rooted in this Protestant animus <laughs> against against Catholics, and yeah. it's really it's really fascinating. I only realised, uh, you know, only going back a, a, a couple of years ago, realising that actually a lot of these things are rooted in the Reformation. You know, so what was we were attacking Catholics, but actually throughout history has got kind of reformed yeah. as. Christianity is fundamentally in conflict with science um and it's fascinating there's so many things just root seem to me to be rooted in the reformation it's fascinating um so you're right yeah those those guys certainly popularized it but a a lot of the most common myths seem to be based in the reformation I don't know whether that's the case or not that's no that's exactly what James Angiriano's book um it's called science and religion um, in the Protestant tradition, I think, if I'm not cor- if I'm not mistaken, that's exactly what his book argues. Um, the I conflict- didn't know that, so I'm, I'm oh, a, right. I, I, I haven't read his book, so I'll, uh, I'll if yeah. if if, he, if, he agree, if if I agree with him, then I'll, I'll have to. Oh yeah, I'll have it's to, exactly uh... as as you say, yeah, quite <laughs> quite literally. You you've got it, man. <laughs> um, that's precisely what. And some people can trace it even further back. Um, people like Tom Holland, the more, more popular historian. He would, in a different sort of way, but he'll trace it back all the way to the Old Testament, and he shows how there's right. been a reversal of thinking. Um, where in the Old Testament, um, uh, many of the you know um, Hebrew prophets um, were telling the nations around them that you know their polytheism was false, and our belief in the one true God was true. So our belief in in Yahweh, you know, was was the true belief, and your polytheism is not the truth. By the 19th century, obviously, you get reversal. So you have, you know, atheist secularists now telling uh, theists that your belief is superstitious. It's not true. You know, we have the rational position. We have the scientific position. We have the truth. So he traces it like that. Um, but James Angriani right. takes a mid position where, yeah, he he kind of um, links it back, as you rightly said, to the Protestant um, Reformation, where for um, the Protestants, they were really trying to obviously carve a space for themselves as kind of um, presenting true Christianity. And they had to, of course, show why Catholicism was false. So they attacked multiple things, you know, Catholic miracles and the authority of the church. Obviously, you know, most people were of Sola Scriptura, um, the authority of the Pope and, and, and just a whole bunch of things. Um, many of the, you know, early church councils and, and stuff like that. And they really kind of, made this image of you know the dark ages which is another myth of course yeah uh, yeah yeah because as many historians now um to mention two of them said folk is a really good one who's written a book called the light ages um james hannam is another good one who's written yes. a book called philosophers right yeah so you know we, as historians we're well aware now that that's not true like the middle ages was not anywhere near the dark ages they they the science of that period was very advanced um um, and all of that stuff. But yeah, at the Protestant Reformation, obviously, Protestants created that image of um, of the Catholics. And then what happens is by the 18th century, um, this is a you know very kind of generalized version of it. But by the 18th century, with the Enlightenment period, you have liberal Christians 
starting to attack Protestant Christians because they're saying that Protestant Christians haven't gone far enough. They're still a bit too orthodox. So it's just a lot of infighting within the church. Um, and then this kind of new um, liberal kind of Christian narrative, um, you know, shifts into the 19th century. And then as you rightly said, by the 19th century, what you then have is, um, again, secularists attacking all of Christianity. So it starts, as you say, um, with Protestants attacking um, Catholics. And then by the 19th century, it's, it's secularists attacking Christians. And the secularists are weaponizing science because science yeah. um, has just, in a sense, been um, codified, you could say, in the 19th century. So the understanding of science um, um, as another historian called Peter Harrison has has shown that our understanding of modern science develops in the 19th century. So prior to the 19th century, you don't really have the understanding of science that we have. I mean, it's that that, you know, these secularists are able to kind of weaponize and codify and, codify and use that as a, as a way to attack Christianity. But again, the actual idea of this conflict is false because it was a narrative that was constructed to make Christians look bad. Um, that yeah. was the sole purpose of the narrative for secularists and atheists. Um, but well, Draper, oh, go ahead. And I was going to say, I mean, it's been very successful because very. I, I would say within within the sort of cultural consciousness of the West, mm. um, you know, there, there is this massive dis, uh, disconnect between you know professional historians, you know, historians of science, and then the, the general public who generally do believe in things like the Dark Ages. Yes, um, yeah. that that Christians taught the earth was flat and that Columbus thought he was going to sail away and fall off the edge of the earth. I mean, um, but th th these things are, are just understood to be self-evidently the case. Right. And, uh, but, 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 but obviously within professional acad academia, intent, that's obviously not the, not the case. Yeah. yeah. What, what, why, uh, why do you think they've stuck around? I mean, are we, are we not doing a very good job? Do you think, uh, um, dispelling those myths or you know is it our responsibility to do to do so is that is that someone like you yours role you know you, you as mm. someone who's training you know is that is that something you see yourself um you know part of your role to dispel some of those myths for for, for yeah. both the secular world and, and christians as well yeah i mean partly again that's that is that i mean that's almost the, the whole reason why i personally kind of went into it um now i would say i have you know slightly different views of what, what I'd like to do but certainly I, I recognize this big disparity as you've rightly said between the field where nobody in our field you know thinks even you know considers that idea of conflict I you know we got past that like 30 years ago and even beyond that um with John Hedley Brooks um book he, he's like one of the leading historians in our fields called right. a book in 1991 called science um religion some historical perspectives and that book really set the tone for where historians are kind of at now um, and we're kind of expanding beyond that now um, but certainly in the public domain um, the idea is still prevalent um, and uh, the reasons for that are complicated once again I'd have to probably point to James Ungariani and Dave Hutchins I don't know if you know do you know Dave Hutchins by any chance I think I added him on Facebook I think because you recommended the um I think a while back the the book and I added it to, add it to my Amazon wish list. Oh yeah, um, yeah. and, and I, he he was one of the was he a co-author or yeah or or, or, it's, or or a book you you contributed or something like that. And yeah. so I added it to my Amazon wish list. So I, I added oh. him as a friend when I saw you, you tagged him. Yeah, yeah he seems really interesting. 
Yeah, they exactly. They've written another more popular version of James Ungirianu's academic book, which talks about all of this stuff. So I haven't read the full thing yet, but because uh, yeah. it's not out in this country as of yet. But you know that um, some so, so so they'll have some good reasons. But of course, some of the you know basic reasons are that it's it's easy to believe. It's an is a simple kind of narrative to believe. You know, instead of believing complexity, which is what most historians would kind of go by. Any historical interaction is complex. That's the basic fundamental um, of of just doing history. Even the Duke of Argo, you know, I'm studying one guy, and his life is, you know, crazy, um, um, uh, complicated. But the other thing that other historians might point out is um, identity. So for many um, people and many worldviews, let's say it could just be a part of their identity. So. An, uh, uh, an obvious example is, you know, Richard Dawkins, again, new atheists. But also I'd say like, um, I'm sure you're aware of the kind of new internet atheists as well, like Alex O'Connor, um, um, Stephen Woodford, Drew McCoy, all of these guys who are now, you know, doing it on the internet. Um, I'd, I'd say they're a bit more nuanced than the old new atheists. Um, but they still more or less, you know, Alex O'Connor has tried to do some history of Galileo and stuff like that. Um, still, still gets it wrong, and it's it's like the information is out there, but these guys almost have to see it as part of their identity, and that's not my argument. That's an argument yeah. from Peter Harrison. Um, but I think it is quite true. So I think it's it's not just about the evidence. Uh, you know, human beings we don't just go by evidence. We all, we obviously go by feelings, emotions. You know, human beings are quite irrational, and um, we like to think that we're very rational, but really our worldview shape you know, <laughs> a lot of what we believe, um, psychologists, cognitive scientists, you know, will tell you that, you know, straight up. So, yeah, so ease of believing in that narrative, the difficulty of understanding the truth is another thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, for me, I've had to go, you know, I've had to do a PhD to try and understand this stuff. And <laughs> not saying that everyone has to do that, of course, but it is complicated to understand the truth of what has happened, um, historically speaking. Um, and then identity as the kind of third reason. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I guess going on from what you said, like people are motivated to reason, motivated reasoning is kind of involved because if you don't want something to be true, like if you don't want Christianity to be true, it's much easier to to be motivated to embrace things that make it more difficult to embrace mm. christianity as being um you know rooted in in, in truth it's always struck me as sort of low-hanging fruit um you know rather than doing the work right to try, right, right. To try and dig into it one, one person i would say I, i'm sure you you come across tim o'neill who runs the history yes. for atheists yeah. so he, he he is great yeah he, he's like a godsend like we <laughs> christians should like pray for him and, and thank <laughs> god, and god for him because he just does such an amazing job um at, at at just addressing all of these um these yeah. myths um yeah. that, that a lot of atheists you know popular atheists and and even you know atheist scientists and philosophers you know, will, will repeat some of these these claims yeah um yeah. and which are you know totally atheist, you know just untrue and he does such a fantastic job so if anyone listening if you come across um his, his blog is called or website it's called the yeah, history for atheists and he's just unfortunately mm. they are very long blog posts yes, but they yeah. are they are fantastic i mean he's he's one head of a of a, of a historian he has he does a such a fantastic job well, right which, 
useful. Yeah. yeah I, no, I, I, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying. Yeah, I was just saying he does. He does a very good job. Mm. I was. I was going to say that. So, as as a historian, I have to be quite fair. And so, as much as I, you know, will critique secularists, I also have to critique Christians um, ourselves <laughs> because we've yeah. also um, not done a good job. Um, in, in not everybody, but. One of the problems I've noticed with um, um, Christians themselves is, okay, so Christians don't aren't necessarily going to accept the conflict narrative, but what they do accept is the harmony thesis between science and Christianity. Yes. As a historian, I can't say that that is the case either. So, no. you know, as a historian, we take the view because of the because it, it, there's no real way to even define what science is necessarily because it's been um, different things throughout history. So the idea that this harmony thesis between science and Christianity is, is a thing doesn't really work necessarily, um, but Christians tend to adopt that. So apologists will, you know, tend to adopt that view. Um, and Peter Harrison, once again, argues in his book, which is a really good book, um, it's called The Territories of Science and Religion, that a modern understanding of religion as beliefs um, and creeds only develops at the Protestant Reformation I mean, our modern un understanding of science and systematized knowledge of the natural world develops in the um, 19th century. So it's not really, he argues that linguistically, it's not even really possible to talk about a relationship between science and religion right. before the 19th century, because science hasn't been defined in the way that it is in the 19th century. Um, certainly in the Middle Ages, you can't, you can't really do that. At best, you could talk about a relationship between philosophy um, and theology, because those were probably more accurate definitions that were used for that um, up until the 19th century, um, quite literally. So um, there's a there's a danger for Christians themselves in going too far the opposite direction. Um, and so I sometimes, well, a lot of the time, I see, you know, Christians or you know, scientists sometimes say stuff like, science is a gift from God. And as a, you know, as a Christian myself, but as a historian, I, I kind of recoil because for me it's like what what do you mean by that i'm not really sure yeah. what you mean by that i would rather put it i'm um, speaking as a as a christian that science uh, or the ability to do science is a gift from god as opposed to okay. science itself is a gift from god just because in the middle ages they wouldn't have talked about science uh in the kind of in antiquity they wouldn't have talked about science and one of the problems that this um one of the other things I would say that is, is a problem that Christians maybe do have um, is also we tend to locate the origins of, of you know, science to the Protestant Reformation as well. Um, and we talk about, you know, how in this period, you know, when we're trying to combat the um, conflict narrative, we'll talk about, you know, how science was developed in a Christian worldview in yeah. the 17th century, which all, all, all of this is, is very much true, um, but it is exclusionary. Um, in the sense that it doesn't, um, it often actually excludes the Catholics before um, yes. who were doing excellent science. Um, again, referring to Seb Folt's work um, and James Hannam and all the other historians who've done work in that area. It also excludes Eastern Orthodoxy. We know we don't yeah. know much about um, that side of Christianity and 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 um, and science. Um, and another thing with that narrative, as as much as there is truth to it, um, it does also exclude females. I mean, if you want to talk about um, uh, Christian females or non-Christian females, um, that narrative usually, you know, when you when, when we hear about people like Newton and Kepler and Boyle 
obviously noticed that they're all you know males and um, white European males um, and that as, as much as that is true it does kind of leave out a lot more of the story and I think um, now historians are um, starting to kind of pick up on that um, and push beyond that so we're trying to now um, take into a, take take a more holistic picture of of the history of science and religion and, and all of its complexities um, so again, that's the the issue is that it's very complicated, um, and it's, it's yeah. obviously tough for people to kind of keep up with. But I do no, think I think it's quite important that um, you know, as a Christian and as a historian, we're we're not excluding certain groups as well. Absolutely, I think that's a really important distinction. Um, but how you define, you know, we we thank God, praise God for the for the ability to be able to do science. And I think right. you're right; it does feel like when you read a lot of apologetics books that suddenly it's like um the scientific re revolution began right right and reformation scientific revolution it's this correlation and causation type thing yeah. um and, and and that seems to be you know very popular in, in in christian writings but you know christians have been like you said the scientific developments you know on ongoing you know going back to ancient greeks and, and yeah, mesopotamians yeah. and, and mm. uh, you know china africa yeah. Um, you know, there's there's been things that we would consider scientific, um, you know, expert, and obviously, like you said, they wouldn't have um, qualified it in, in quite those terms. But it was it was it was scientific, yes. um, yeah. and um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's it's, um, it's an important distinction to to make. I mean, even go back to Augustine because Augustine, you know, Christians like you were saying, this it's not necessarily it's not conflict, it's not harmony, it's it's complex. Um, it, it, it is, um, you know, Christians have also, yeah, you can point to the scientific revolution, but we've also been, Christians have always been speaking ignorantly on scientific matters throughout history as well. You know, Augustine talks about, you know, people, um, you know, making claims about the natural world mm. that go beyond what the Bible says. It's like just, um, I can't, I can't remember exactly. I should, I should look this up before, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he says something about, you know, Christians should be very careful about how they speak authoritatively about the natural world when yeah. they don't necessarily have the expertise to to do so. Um, yeah. You know, mis misusing scripture to uh, to make scientific claims. Mm. He, yeah, no, yeah, he he certainly. Um, that's a good point. Augustine, you know, certainly took the view that philosophy, which was a Greek um, impetus, um, not necessarily a Christian impetus, was totally acceptable because. Um, the Greeks had discovered quite a lot that Christians hadn't. And so Christians, um, if Greek knowledge about the world was good enough, um, and I think the claim was all truth is God's truth. So if, if Greek philosophers have information about the world that we don't, then we should take that and we shouldn't make, you know, um, you know, silly claims <laughs> um, from the scriptures um, that might be false if we can get, you know, better information from the Greek um, philosophers. So he certainly, yeah, certainly took that view. And that view was very, that view kind of underpinned um, the medieval period um, um, almost essentially throughout. So it, um, uh, in terms of like philosophy or natural philosophy, which was a closer term to modern science, at least in that yeah. period, as a way of doing um, or understanding, understanding the world. So it was totally fine to do natural philosophy to discover more things about the world um, beyond necessarily what um scripture kind of um, um told us you could say or at least in line with what scripture told us <laughs> yeah well it sounds like a lot of christian we could still learn a lot from augustine's wisdom 
about um, you know not making claims that claim to speak or authoritatively about um, you know the natural world in light of scripture. Um, mm. I guess an example would be would be something like young earth creationism, um, um, which remains remains contentious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I just just quickly, I've got something. I I know we there's some things we we discussed before we um, started. We want to talk about. I guess just quickly, what would be interesting is what what are what are a couple of the of the these these myths about the conflict between Christianity and science. Mm-hmm. And, and very quickly, you know, whether that's flat earth, Galileo, oh, dark right. ages, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, and then maybe like, you know, why they're not necessarily true or if, if, if you're happy to, you don't have to. Uh, but but it'll be interesting. I think there are, you know, things about the flat earth that um, mm. uh, that, 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 that are claimed about today. You know, Christians taught the earth was flat. And like I said, Columbus thought, you know, thought he was going to you know fall off the edge of the earth and things like mm. that um how, how would you respond you know you say a non-christian says look hey nathan you know i can't embrace christianity i i i love science and value the you know the, what, what science has contributed to the world um mm. you know i can't yeah. i can't embrace something that's that's in conflict with that yeah i mean the i guess the common ones um and there's there's so many of them uh first i'll refer to the people who probably do a lot of the work on this. Um, so Ronald Numbers um, is a is a, one of the kind of pioneers in our field who's done a lot of work debunking these myths. Um, so he's written one book, a number, but one book called Galileo Goes to Jail um, and Other Myths About the History of Science Invasion, something like that. Um, another historian called Mike Kies has written a, a book recently um, called something like Seven Myths About the History and Future of Science and Religion. Who, um, who's who's the guy who wrote Slaying the Dragons? I thought that was excellent. Have you I read, read that? Slaying the Dragons. I'm pretty mm. sure it's a Oxford historian of science. Okay. And it's fantastic because I've read some of the ones you're talking about with Ron, Ronald Numbers, but I, I found Slaying the Dragons. I'm going to look up while you keep talking. I'm going to quickly look it up with <laughs> if you can, yeah. so I can tell you who it's by while you yeah. while you while you bust these myths. I wonder if I, I know them. Hi there. This is Phil Dunkarf. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe, share the episode, and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. classic ones of the dark ages myth that um science was suppressed by the medieval church um in the dark ages um of course we know that that's not true now in the sense that um the mid the, the, the medieval ages um scientific in, uh, developments were uh, in a sense ubiquitous um so again Seb Falk would be one of the guys to talk about on this but the, you know he brings out stuff like the astrolabe which was like the um, medieval equivalent of a smartphone today. It was this quite amazing uh, astronomical invention um, that uh, medieval thinkers and philosophers u- utilized. And it, he describes it as you basically had the universe in the palm of your hand with this device. Um, 
And they had, you know, inventions like either they invented these things or they brought or these things were brought into Europe um, during this period and and create and, and kind of developed even better. So, you know, just general things like gunpowder, um, paper, um, spectacles, um, all of these types of things were, you know, developments, not to mention the universities, of course, were a development of Europe. Um, hospitals as well as you probably more, know more about this than me yeah. hospitals are very you know christian invention um absolutely and, and go back you know right to let's say the fourth century and onwards um, well the romans i'll, I'll back because the romans had hospitals but they were only for soldiers and for slaves right. they never had this idea of of the hospital being for uh for the populace yeah. for everyone yeah it was that, that that's the thing that was particularly christian is it, it was like christian is like no everyone we're going to care for everyone not just uh, uh not just soldiers and and, and, yeah. and slaves right no precisely yeah exactly that so there's obviously that as you've as you've rightly pointed out um and as a, as i mentioned the universities which you know institutionalized science um which are you know you, you know science today is practiced in the universities and there's a whole history to do with that but also um even even stuff like the idea that um, in the Middle Ages, they all believed in supernatural stuff and they couldn't distinguish that between science. It's not really true at all. You know, there's um, a lot of work that's been done to show that it was actually these natural philosophers, people like Thomas Aquinas in the universities who were actually separating the supernatural from natural and saying yeah. that we should be able to describe natural things without referencing supernatural and um, the supernatural um, or, or miracles, let's say. So, you know, that idea is not something that comes in the 19th century, you know, when, let's say, these um, secularists and atheists um, stopped believing in miracles or, or anything like that. It's something that goes right back to, you know, 13th, 14th century. So the idea of the Dark Ages is obviously quite a, a big myth. And obviously, I'm not doing justice. You, you know, you want to speak to a medieval historian who will be the best. No, I mean, going on that, just what you were saying there is it's interesting because C.S. Lucy talks about Sort of chronological snobbery as we look back at ancient people as these yeah. sort of um you know believing anything i mean like you know when we questions talk about the virgin birth it's like they they ancient people knew how babies were made right. like they knew they knew sex resulted in babies and, yeah. then, and actually a virgin birth was unusual uh, yeah. they knew that when people died they didn't usually come back to life if they were yeah. genuinely dead and and, it, and it's quite it's it's always <laughs> it is this sort of snobbery is like oh, silly ancient people it's like no they, yeah. they were not they these were not stupid people no, uh, no they were not ignorant people you know they knew the the fundamental basics of of, of how <laughs> life is made and when it and when it ends um exactly. it's, yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating what yeah. what a bit about the flat earth so what did do christians ever ever teach the you know were they teaching the flat mm. earth you know till a, a hundred you know a hundred years right. ago or I actually, I actually know a lot less about that because I haven't um, looked in that too much myself. But the general, the general picture that you know most historians will say is that, of course, Christians never seriously never taught that. Like there was no serious Christian who ever taught that. It was well known since the Greek period that yeah. the Earth was round. But the what I do know is that that was a myth that was invented by a guy called uh, Irvin Washington. I think is his name. Um, yeah. It was kind of conjured up for particular reasons. I, I don't know the full story. This is something that Tim um, Tim O'Neill would <laughs> he yeah. had his whole article on that. But the general picture I know is that that's not true. In fact, um, James Hannum, um, I just recently listened. He's a historian of the middle um, medieval period. He's um, actually 
writing a book right now where he shows how actually Christian missionaries actually brought the idea of a round earth to China in the 16th wow. century. And wow, that's, that's very cool. Known. Yeah. So I'm actually quite excited to see that his book is is about how the earth became round, so how it became known across the globe that the earth was round. Um, and so up until then, it was, you know, places like China actually did believe in something more like a flat earth. But in right. Europe, um, no, we, we rather just sweets were bringing that information there. So again, that idea is 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 certainly not true. And um, the other classic one is obviously, um, oh, was you going to say something? Well, I was going to say Galileo. I don't know if that was you were going to talk about is that that that's one yeah. of the, the more popular um, conflicts that sort of seeped into pub the public yeah. consciousness. But what were, what were we going to say? If I, I was going to say that. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Snap. Yeah. Galileo's case is, is the probably, apart from Darwin, of course, the most popular um, case, of course, that everyone will refer to. Again, it's, it's the reason why historians will say complicated is because the Galileo case is actually really quite complicated. Um, it all takes place in the 17th century. So between, we can say, 1605 to the, uh, 1635. Um, but you to understand what was really taking place between Galileo, so he was obviously promoting um, heliocentrism, which you know, which was different from geocentrism, the idea that the Earth was at the center, um, heliocentrism being the idea that the Sun is um, at the center. And obviously, Copernicus in the 16th century um, um, had written a book in 1543 on this. Um, what one has to understand um, about this is that the, at Galileo's time, the method for the Catholic Church of doing science wasn't observation and experimentation. And this is one of the key distinctions that one has to first make. So for the medieval period, because of Aristotle's influence, um, mainly, at least when Aristotle's influence came back um, during the period of the um, universities, the main kind of way of, of, of doing what we would call science, what was called natural philosophy, was by reading. So it was through books um, and through logical deduction. So for experiments, you could say. But the practice of um, actually observing and experimenting multiple times was not the case, which is why when Galileo um, observed certain things through a telescope, um, many people in the church didn't agree with it because it was yeah. a debate about how to do science. It wasn't a, a debate about um, science versus religion. Because Galileo himself was obviously, um, well, maybe people don't know, I'm not sure, but he was obviously a Catholic of himself. He considered himself a devout Catholic, but he wasn't interested in the method of science that the church endorsed, which was the consensus. And that method had worked perfectly well. Those, you know, the, throughout the med medieval period, and many inventions were, were made. Um, many things had been discovered, thought about, so forth and so on. But Galileo was... Um, and was interested in these in this kind of new method of experimentation and observation. So he's um, discovers that the telescope has been invented, and he kind of de designs his own. Um, and he looks out into the stars, um, into the into kind of space, um, and he sees a number of things that Aristotle says one shouldn't see. So right. Aristotle's kind of worldview, in the medieval kind of worldview was that there was a terrestrial and celestial region and the terrestrial the, um, terrestrial region was from everything from the earth um, to the moon and the celestial region was everything from the moon up, um, out, outwards. So basically space. The celestial region was perfect 
um, and it was um, eternal, whereas the, the terrestrial region um, was imperfect. It was the, the, the sump of the universe. Um, um, yeah, everything within that period, within that kind of um, part of the universe was, was not great. And then what um, Galileo sees, obviously, is that he sees imperfections in the celestial region. So he sees sunspots, craters on the moon, um, and he also sees stuff like the phases of Venus don't seem to line up with a geocentric view. Um, and so what he's doing is challenging the convention of the time. He's challenging right. the, the kind of convention of science at the time. And, and, and then it becomes um, a big case, essentially, for, for, um, for various reasons. Um, but one of the main reasons, um, or one of, one of the reasons is firstly, because of that idea of authority and what, what it actually means to do science. So a question, a question in the church of how to do science. So there's an investigation, of course, in around 16, 16, 16, 15, 16, 16, um, into what he's um, done. And he's told by a cardinal, because you don't have good evidence for your view, um, you're not to promote your view. Um, in a sense, you can. He, he was still allowed to hold to it, but he couldn't promote yeah. it as if it was. But um, was he, that was that true? I mean, did he actually have you know indisputable evidence that his view was right at, uh, at, at, that, at that point? Well, that's that. That's the the, the question. It, it's tough to say because to, for many people in the church, yes, he did. He didn't have any good evidence for his view. Um, um, simply because for them the the way that he was looking at his evidence that you know utilizing the telescope was not evidence in itself at all yeah. so that's the that's the challenge and that's what i think one has to recognize it's about the methodology um and so it's what, what even what you said is almost not even the right question to ask right because yeah. it's yeah because it's about what which what what side saw as the right methodology so for galileo he had the right methodology and he had good evidence um, although there were um, still some problems as far as as far as I know some historians have spoken about but for many um, people in the church and in, in the Catholic church they didn't see it as good enough evidence um, and you know the evidence that they did have to support their view was just intuition you know when you're on the earth um, it looks like the sun's moving it looks like we Absolutely. are standing still and yeah. so that seemed you know more plausible um, and they weren't obviously bothered with you know checking through the telescope because for them that's not the method of science that we utilize. Yeah, that's 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 a really good example because it's it, it's one of those things where it's that chronological snobbery again. It's like why didn't they just yeah. understand it? But right. actually, a, a lot of the things that that that, that heliocentrism um, that actually entails are yeah. things that are counterintuitive because you know if you like you said if you if you look it feels like you're still and everything is moving around you. Yeah, you, know, you would think, you know, people think, oh, well, the earth is moving around at thousands of miles an hour. Well, okay, so if I throw something in the air, it should be right, yeah. It should be miles away, but it's yeah. not. It's not. So there's, yeah. there's there's all these things if you if you think about, you know, even even if you say about the earth, it doesn't look round. Does no, it? You know, yeah, if you if you, no. if you if you if you look up in the sky, you have to go, you know, no ancient person would ever really get to the point where you know, you want to see the horizon, but it yeah. doesn't necessarily look like it's 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 rounds. There's all these things yeah. that are that are, are deeply counterintuitive that yeah. you do actually need substantial evidence to to bypass. And and yeah. and, and I think that's what people forget. Looking back at Galileo is perhaps that wasn't 
it wasn't actually the case. And, and I'm, you're probably going to talk about this as well. Is he didn't really do himself any favors either, did he? You know, calling the Pope was it Simplicito or, or yeah, something? Yeah, you know, basically, right. you know, you yeah. know, people forget all that stuff. You know, like you're yeah. like, oh, this is. And uh, yeah, you know, you're right. He yeah, he caused a lot of the trouble himself, indeed. <laughs> um, and also, yeah, and also, you know, the church didn't condemn. You know, one of the classic things that historians say is that the church didn't condemn him for science they yeah um condemned him in a sense that he broke a law that you know if, if yeah. you break a law of course you're going to be condemned um and that's what he he did when he wrote um when he wrote his book in 1632 that promoted pedocentrism um and obviously um had that character simplicit simplicico simplicity yeah, i think it's yeah, simplicity. something like that isn't it yeah yeah who was pope urban the eighth who was his friend um and so that was what he was done for I mean, and the other myths are, you know, he was tortured or he was yeah. sent to prison and all that stuff. And now it's known again by historians that 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 stuff it certainly wasn't. She certainly wasn't tortured. He was threatened with torture. I think is the best that one could say. Um, but there's no evidence that he actually was tortured. Um, he was actually, you know, during the kind of trial phase, he was put up in a Tuscan embassy, which and he got like nice meals and stuff. Like he was treated pretty decently actually. Yeah. Um, and he was put under house arrest. Um, and that was ma mainly it. It was, you know, it, this idea of this grand conflict between science and religion is just not there. Um, you know, lastly, he he was a Catholic himself. It just doesn't yeah. add up. So yeah, but it's one of those things that people constantly point to. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. I've just seen that we've got a question come up, so I'm going to put the question up for you, so you can see. Oh right. I'm going to, I don't know what you want to say. That's computer theist has said uh, for the pod, uh, people listening on podcast in the future. It says, uh, Nathan, would you, would you say Christian missionaries brought science um, wherever they went? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, again, I can refer um, to historians who are working on this more so than me. John Stenhouse in, in Australia, I think, is the guy that's probably doing some of the most work right now on Christian missionaries. Um, that to that answer is a yes and a no. Um, they it's, it's actually a really complicated one. Um, but if we do take it from the Protestant period onwards, because that is actually the period where missionary work kind of exploded, um, it is in one sense very true to say that uh, missionaries were actually some of the first people to bring science, modern science that is, um, you know, Western kind of modern science to other parts of the world. And that's actually so. The, one of the examples of obviously the bringing the kind of round earth to China, I mean, is one example. Um, another another reason why Christian missionaries um, could be said to be doing this is because they tended to bring a lot of medical science from the West to these other parts of the world, which they were trying to Christianize. So medical science and Christianity actually go um, quite well together, um, and so. To say that they brought science wherever they went is a complicated one, and I don't think there's been enough studies on that yet to be sure. But certainly, there is a good case um, to say that missionaries did bring a lot of science, Western science, that is, um, to other parts of the world. Then you run into issues of obviously the empire, um, uh, cultural issues, um, you know, different religions, and all of these types of things, which one has to kind of contend with. But um, certainly, missionaries play a big part, um, and even in you know science in 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 Europe, many scientists, particularly in fields like anthropology um, and ethnology, 
missionaries were like the first you know first point of reference because um in to try to understand humans as a whole across the world the missionaries were the people who had gone out to you know the rest of the world um and had written down you know the reports of what they had seen um so a lot of the people in you know in my history of science i look at britain in 19th century a lot of the anthropologists in the 19th century century rely heavily on missionaries even the secularists they you know they have to consider missionaries as authorities um because some of them haven't been to these places um and so missionary science is actually really important um and i think it's something that's just being more so looked into now so there's a lot there that's interesting i mean it's, it's a good question because I, I i you know i didn't i didn't realize i think with medical science i, I think i was uh, sort of much more aware of of how how missionaries did share a more um, scientific approach to, to medicine and, and healthcare mm. to, to lots of parts of the world and it's not to say that in some of those places some good things were not uh being done and and actually we actually you know in, in many cases we learned from those places yes. that we went as well but there was there was definitely an exchange of knowledge but i think probably on balance um a lot of those a lot of those countries did benefit um uh, from from the knowledge that the um you know the scientific and medical knowledge that those missionaries brought um I, before i forget i'm going to look at this this book uh that i'm going to oh, remind yeah. you because if you haven't read it it is excellent it's called um slaying the dragons destroying myths in the history of science and faith and it's by mm -hmm. alan chapman Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. I don't know him personally, but I know of him. Okay. Yeah, so he's a uh, his, uh, historian of science at the University of Oxford, I think. So I, I just about uh, okay, yeah, got, yeah. Got, got, yeah, about got that. Um, great. So it's that, that that's that's really helpful. I said so. Please, if people are listening, please please do send your questions in, and we'll try and um, we'll try and address them. Um, I guess what would be interesting is we again we didn't. I should have mentioned at the beginning how long you wanted to chat for, how long you're free for. But mm. um, assuming you were right for another sort of 10, 15 minutes or something, um, is that okay? Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then then I, I guess we're interested to talk about some of the things I know you were talking about. Um, we were probably connected very much, we just said about this exchange of knowledge between the West uh, and, and the countries that, that missionaries went to. Um, you, did you talk about race and, and, and um, you know, empire and science so how these things and history and how these things are connected i'd be interested mm. to, to hear a little bit more about your 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 perspective on that yeah that's yeah so it's a topic that i think at least for me has really only kind of become of significant importance since last year's events so george floyd covid um so what's what's kind of happened in particular in my field of of history of science and religion but history in general i think history of science in general um, is that there's been a really drastic change in in the way that um, our field does its research. This is not to say that people weren't working on these topics before, but now they've become much more explicit since um, all of you know BLM um, and COVID and the you know global nature of this all. Um, and so now we're becoming explicit about the, and this is actually one of the reasons why I I said that. Um, for Christians, it's a bit dangerous to say that science is a gift from God because you have to accept the good and the bad that comes with science, right? The colonial aspect of, of the history of science, the racist aspect of science is there as well. The gendered aspect of science is there as well. So if Christians want to claim all of that, then they have to claim all of it. They can't just claim the good parts of science, you know, the Newtons and the Faradays, and then leave out that other aspect. So 
um yeah that is, is an important one because um in in general if we look at let's say science in the uh, uh british M british empire at least um a large a large part of the reason why a lot of certain science oh well a large part of the reason why certain sciences could be done was because of that the expanse of the empire so again going back to anthropology and ethnology in anthropology particularly from you know the 80s 70s onwards um even before then to be honest enlightenment period and so forth and so on it was assumed that you know europeans were the most civilized and that any other nation around the world was less civilized so when you read anthropology works so edward burnett tyler is um probably the main anthropologist in britain in the 19th century he writes a book called primitive culture which is right. really quite infamous i mean shaping the field of of modern kind of anthropology and you know the the whole idea is is that um try is to try to understand human beings and human culture um he's able to get a lot of his information again because you know the british empire has such an expense around the world but the assumption for him and many others is that we are the pinnacle of society you know the white european male and so they judge all other nations uh, africans asians people in the middle east um as lower as sub as subpar essentially and then they draw this kind of history of human development from savage to civilized and that's how they kind of that's how people like edward bennett bennett tyler understand um society and it's a it's a it's a science anthropology is a form of you know doing science but it's it's it has heavy ties to you know race he was a um he was a racist himself and many you know anthropologists were um and so there's there's things like that that one has to kind of reckon with in the history of science and historians are i think becoming a lot more aware of that again not to say that they haven't done so in the past but it's becoming yeah. a lot more explicit now and then the other thing um very briefly is just the kind of history in general of race and um, itself i mean you know, race science is 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 quite a big part of the history of science in general um which is something that's established you could say in the 18th century second half of the 18th century and there's this really big debate that goes right from the you know second half of the 18th century you know in line with the enlightenment and liberal kind of christianity and all of these things to kind of the early 20th century which is a debate between what's known as polygenesis and monogenesis um which um but for people who might not know um polygenesis is the idea that um different humans um, originated in different parts of the world, let's say, so from different stock um, um, originally, whereas monogenesis is that all humans come from one stock. Um, and polygenesis is a way to obviously justify racism, is a way to say that there are certain races that are less advanced than other races. Um, so, yeah, there are certain races that are less advanced um, than other races. Whereas monogenesis is um, is a more of a, is a you could say originally a biblical view um, of the kind of unity of all mankind, but even yeah. with mono, even within monogenesis monogenesis, you can still have racial views. So people like Darwin, um, who obviously his theory of evolution actually you know argued for monogenesis. Darwin was still a racist in the sense that he still held to different. Um, 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 racial hierarchies of human beings yes. so he's still held to the view that uh you know the um, people in tierra del fuego south america were savage 
um, were animal-like, uh, people in South Africa were animal-like when he went on his um, journeys on HMS mm -hmm. Beagle, um, and that the European male was, you know, the height of, of humanity. And uh, Edward Burnett, Edward um, Burnett Tyler, I think that's how you say his name, you know, held to a similar view where they, ha they had some differences. Um, and so, yeah, you, you have all of this stuff, which complicates, you know, the history of science um, narrative, history of science and religion in particular, um, which one has to, as a historian, we have to reckon with all of this stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating and how interconnected we, um, we will are. And, and I get uh, one example I was thinking when you were talking about the, the connection between modern science and medicine and, and empire is, um, you know, my own area, um, mm. especially there is sort of the, the operating theater, uh, perioperative care, sort of the operating theaters, right. is that there's certain drugs that are really key for us to be able to do certain kinds of surgery that were discovered by, you know, almost imperialists in, in the Amazon basin in, in South America. Um, Mm. Tubercurinin uh, is like a, a muscle relaxant. So, um, okay. you know, indigenous people would fire kind of darts that were um, tainted with this substance that would then paralyze, um, you know, the animals that they they were they were shot with. Mm. Um, and this actually led to, you know, the, the you know uh, drugs derived from this substance are what are used today in in you know in millions of people's surgeries each year and we wouldn't actually be able to operate on people because they have to be muscle relaxed um if we didn't have those you know those that exposure to that to, to that drugs there's there's loads of things and that's just one thing on the top of my head but you can really yeah. see how there's so many um connections between empire and and um right. i didn't you know, even know. yeah that's, that's fascinating yeah it's really it's really interesting um mm. yeah whole, whole host of things actually interesting actually although i've never studied the history of uh so i did do a top-up degree with the history of empires um, oh right yeah yeah so so I, I i did my my dissertation on on um slave colonies in hispaniola uh modern wow. haiti um uh, and um yeah, horrendous stuff, you know, in terms of that's why, especially, I know we weren't talking about, but in terms of sort of, um, you know, the Atlantic slave trade and, and, and what kind of went went on, um, you know, I've I, I read some of the, the darkest, yeah, some of the, the, the darkest accounts of, of, of uh, the, the depths of, of sin that humans can um, reduce themselves to. Yeah. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy called Thomas Thistlewood. Um no, I don't think so. Um, he was this kind of sadistic psychopath. Uh, mm. I, I can only describe him as, and uh, who was a slave trader, uh, who was a slave um, owner. Um, and um, you just read like his diary; just it's just right. it's horrifying the things things that they did. Um, right, right, right. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's 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 it's, 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 it's horrific. Um, it really is. It really is. It's yeah. I haven't I haven't read that, but when I have read some of the accounts of yeah, just like the torture devices and stuff like that, it's like wow, you know, this is this is serious. We, we human beings have been really cruel to each other throughout history. Mm. <laughs> really have. <laughs> That's um um tom holland's um book is he kind of talks about that in the first part i think where he talks about roman culture and greek culture and, and stuff like that how 
um, might makes right was kind of the the kind of you know the central world view um, and torture and all that stuff was quite normal um and although christianity was has you know supposed to have transformed that that's been a difficult thing um and there's that other book called bullies and saints which has just come yeah, out yeah so it's like, a really yeah. excellent book like that right. another one i think we both recommend people uh, mm. christians read mm -hmm. yeah 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 so yeah um, it's, it's complicated <laughs> that's why we always go back to it. it's complicated <laughs> yeah no it is it is that's not what i was here we we want we want neat um simple yeah. answers to, to complex questions and that's just not um it's not it's not viable you'll never yeah. uh, the, the truth isn't really attainable um yeah. you know with to you can't really meet meet those meet those demands yeah um yeah um i i guess one thing as well i mean in in, in terms of um your 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 kind of route into the the the, the history of science um i know we talked a bit about this before i mean um the there aren't that many, as I know of, when I sort of, you know, I have a sort of side interest in the history of science. There's not many black scholars in the history of science that I'm, I'm, I'm aware of. Are you, are you one of the few, or, or there, or there, um, are there others we just don't, we don't know about? And if not, kind of why not? Have you, have you sort of pondered yeah. those questions? I imagine a little bit over the last year or two. Yeah. And, yeah. and why, why are there so few? Do you, do you think as well? Yeah. That's a good question as well. Um, uh, it's a, a bit of a tough one. So I make a distinction between the history of science and then the history of science and religion because my specific field is a sub-discipline of the history of science. Um, uh, so I work in the history of science and religion in particular. And yeah, it's true um, that that's the case. Part of the reason that you will tend to find, um, to be you know blunt about it, white you know European males, American as well, um mostly doing this this research or historically doing this research is because historically those have been the people that have been privileged enough to you know yeah. do what we call science um, yeah. and then obviously that brings in all those questions of empire race and and all of all of the class kind of, and class as class. well it's not there aren't many working class yes uh, men or women in higher education right um, yes that's, that's uh, a great uh, so it's um that, that's one of the things that that, that um sorry just just i'm not butting in quickly but that's one of the things that when i was studying the history of empires is that mm. people made this generalization about the west about men about these rich uh, these men but these were these are the most privileged rich people you know that had probably ever existed most privileged people up to that point in history this is not your your, your chimney sweepers oh, and, you know <laughs> and the people people back home were were, were yeah. not living glamorous privileged lives yeah uh, these are people hardened people living hard lives you go back to the victorian right. age it was no uh, no bells and whistles and sprinkles you know living living and living back then and this yeah. is what we, we often project back but these and, and often the people sent out you know were you know even most of the missionaries were extremely privileged yeah yeah um yeah. you know charles darwin voyage you know spending his years you know on a boat right. you know circling the earth you know going to south america very you know rich and privileged you know it, it is it, it's not 
it's not 99% of people. It's this subset of, of people who, who had, like you said, had the resources to do these things. Yeah, man. And, 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 and Tom Sisselwood is a good example of someone from a very privileged background, but mm. was causing damage where he was. So let's send him elsewhere so we can cause damage to people who perhaps don't, we don't think matter as much. Right. Um, and there, 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 there's, there's been a, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of that throughout, throughout history as well. Yeah. Um, no, you raise so there's a, there's a massive class divide, you know, it's just white people, but no, it's a subset of, of, of people, subset, isn't it? Yeah. Um, That's a good point. yeah, I should, I should have even mentioned that because my, my, you know, entire thesis is, is in a sense about that because the Duke of Argyle was, you know, the top, you know, top of the class. He was an aristocrat, you know, apart from monarchy, it doesn't get much more higher than that. Um, and that was essentially part of the reason why he could practice science quite freely because then you know people like Darwin as well as yeah. you said from a wealthy background you know the majority of scientists um if we use that label again that label was invented in, in 1833 you know people before then didn't use that term yeah but the majority of them um yeah certainly from a middle class um, or upper class background um, and so as you rightly said working class people didn't really get the chance which is a, actually interestingly another reason why many atheists and secularists didn't get to participate in science themselves because they tended to be from a like a radical lower working class background um, yeah. and so yeah i think you, you you actually hit on something quite useful there which yeah i totally forgot about but yeah no maybe. no so it's just it's just it's just one of those things that seems to get lost now and, and again i'm really interested you know the racism is is, is such a massive a massive issue but mm. um and and, and ab absolutely should be something that we talk about in terms yeah. of race. But class, what what often happens is is class gets left behind. Yeah. Um, and and that and that's a that's a really important factor today, but also throughout history as well. Yeah. And and I think it, it, it's much richer for for ident you know realizing the, the the role that class social class plays. Um, and, I know, think yeah no hundred percent. I I think that's that's yeah totally correct um and then yeah to to kind of i guess get back to yes yeah, sorry i i went i i took i took us off course there oh no it's all good i mean it, it's it's that's an important one to be honest because it still plays a factor today um in terms of migration let's say of of let's say from my background um of an african person and my parents you know, migrated to this country compared to let's say a middle class or upper class person who's lived in this country and might have a relatively decent well of background my parents didn't have the opportunity so you know to do something like the sciences or you know intellectual something like history of science yeah difficult you know my my, my dad doesn't even have a university degree um and my mum was just she was just able to get an undergrad degree um but it was very difficult and she did that when she was you know in her 50s or something like that wow good on yeah. her good on her yeah <laughs> so i'm you know very proud of it, of course and you know they've they've really supported me i would say in being able to do this but you're 100 right the issue of class and that's again that's also one reason why there might not be as many people you know if, if we limit it at least in my case to africans doing this you know issues of migration um um and then as i was saying it's it, there's also that whole thing of the history of science itself and the way that it was constructed it was constructed yeah. to obviously display white you know western european science as science and anything else was not necessarily science and so obviously that immediately excludes um you know africa the middle east asia any any other parts of the world that were producing knowledge 
but wasn't yeah. classified as um, science. So then what happens with sociologists um, today who are working on science and religion increasingly now, um, which is another really interesting thing um, that, you know, would be worth talking about maybe with a sociologist. Um, they bring out um, these terms. So there's a, there's a sociologist called Kimberly Ross, I think is her name, or Rios rather. And she talks about stereotypical threat and um, social identity threat, I think are the two terms. Stereotypical right. threat is the general idea, stuff, something like, you know, um, Christians, Christianity and science are in conflict. And what they find is that when Christians hear this, they're actually um, deterred from doing science. So it actually makes them feel, even if it's not true, it, yeah. it actually makes them feel like it is true and that they can't do it as well as they should be able to. Um, social identity threat is the idea that, you know, people um, who don't look a certain way immediately feel excluded from science because when you read the general history of science, um, they don't find themselves in it. So then another reason that leads on to the other reason why you won't find necessarily many people doing it is because they don't find themselves in the narratives that have already been written. So again, you know, as I'm doing history of science, I am, you know, more or less studying mainly white people. Um, and I don't say that as a negative thing, um, but yeah. it, is, it just happens to be the case. Um, yeah, and that's part of history. So then what is happening, what, what I have noticed is that there are a lot of, there are historians of science who are from, from Africa and other parts of the world. There's not many of them, but they are certainly around. But a lot of um, historians, let's say, in, uh, in the, from an African background, from what I've seen, are, are tend to be interested in histories of, you know, colonialism, slavery, and yeah. that type of stuff, which makes complete sense, you know, because that's where, you know, one finds themselves in the history. They want to understand yeah. where they came from. So the reason why, you know, a lot of the history of science has been the way it is is because, uh, you know, to be blunt about it is because, you know, the, the kind of European white um, um, male um, dominantly is trying to, you know, identify where they've come from. Um, and the history of science is part of where they've come from. Um, but for, you know, again, other um, people of other different backgrounds, because of that, they might not see that. But they, what they might see is that their history is in the history of slavery or something like that. So yeah. they're more interested in those types of topics. But again, this is not to say that you don't find, you know, African historians. There are quite a number of it. I've even just come across two, no, one today who I didn't know about. Um, they're around, certainly. But for those reasons, there still needs to be an increase, I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting because, because you're right, because a lot of the historians, the black historians that I know of, do stuff around history of empire, history of colonialism, right. history of slavery, um, you know, those kinds of subjects, which is interesting because you're saying that's sort of situated in the fact that that's, that's the history where they see themselves. And, 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 um, uh, and you're right. Yeah. That's, 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 that's really, that's really fascinating. I mean, what, what, um, so, so I guess, um, I guess what you're doing in, in a, in a way is, is a response to that in the sense that as, as people see you, doing history of science oh, yeah. they're, right. they're seeing they're seeing people like them like ah oh, i can i can do history of science yes. you know um you know that that's, that's something I, I i can do but yeah. i guess like like you said the other challenge to that is whether you're black or white or anything else um you're still hearing this often this negative cultural message um uh, that there is this conflict 
you know, yeah, between, exactly. between science well, and yeah, theology, yeah. you know, so you, regardless, you're starting off with this, this footing that, that you, you can't do a very good job at it because ultimately it's, um, um, you know, they, 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 they can't be, um, yeah. they, they can't be wedded together. Right. They can't coexist. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And, and that's certainly the problem. Again, for me, that was certainly one of the issues growing up. I, I inherently just held to that view. And then secondly, I didn't see, you know, many people that look like me in the field. So not much of an interest, as I say, my interest in it was totally random, you know, <laughs> yeah, so random. Mm. Well, I, we have just hit an hour and a half and we didn't discuss how long we're going to chat for. And so I, I think an hour and a half is probably all right. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed um, chatting with you. It's been it's been mm. fun and, and, and really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, once. One one of the things that we usually we get guests to um, to discuss is is maybe a few resources. Um, so maybe like a couple of books um, that you might recommend people. I know you've mentioned quite a few already. So what I can do, I can always put the I'll note them down and put put a link up um, afterwards. Yeah. I, know, I know I mentioned slaying the, the, the dragons, which I've put a link for. Uh, I think on the on the YouTube link. Um, uh, by Alan Chapman, but what maybe another two two books you think that that someone who is not too technical, someone that's maybe new to the the history of, of science, they found you know perhaps what you've discussed fascinating and want to find out a little bit more. What what two books um, would you, would you would you recommend they they discuss uh, they they read? Sorry. Um. So there's one obvious book. The, the only issue is that a second a new edition is coming out, and I would right. recommend that they pick that. But it's called uh, science and religion a very short introduction by oxford university you know those oh yeah those little ones yeah, yeah yeah so that is would be a good one when the second when the new edition comes out which should be very soon i'm not entirely sure when um that's a a good book i think to start off with um it's a bit difficult to you know pinpoint another one but maybe um ronald numbers book which is called something along the lines of warfare. The idea that would have yeah. died. Do you know the one? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's by um, what, what? What was the book that's forthcoming by your two? Um, oh yeah, of course. The, 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 the more reader, reader yeah. friendly. Um, yeah. um, that one's called "Of Popes and Unicorns." That's it. That's the one I've seen. That's yeah. the one I'm waiting to read. Yeah, and that's James Ungarianu and Dave Hutchins. Again, that correct. Um, so th th those are good books. Um, there's others, but they tend to be a bit more academic. But I could mention if you've got a bit. Yeah, of yeah, go for go for it. So yeah, the the kind of core one I would suggest is John Headley Brooks' book, which is called Science um, and Religion: Some Historical Perspectives. That's like the any historian of science and religion has to read that book. It's like you know the. <laughs> the book standard text right yeah and then the other one um is peter harrison's the territories of science and religion um that's another excellent book these are kind of just the standard ones in the field at least um and then i'll probably just recommend one more which is an edited collection book so it has a, a range of scholars in it which is called a rethink in history science and religion an exploration of conflicts and the complexity principle, and that's by Bernard Lightman, B. Lightman. 
Great. Well, I think I, I've noted down five of the six. I'll need to, I'll need to go and search for that for that last one. <laughs> yes. uh, but but thank you. That that's been that's been really helpful. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say before before we finish up? Um, yeah. I mean, the only other things um, which I might say is that um, the you know our field of science and religion, I think, um, unfortunately, doesn't have much press. <laughs> so. Um, a lot of the stuff that you know us within the field know and i'll say that and take for granted is not widely known um in general but i think platforms like this are actually what are helping because historically you know historians in our field have just written books and written them to other academics and really now with the advantage of things like youtube and podcasts um that's been able to help bring some of this information out more and also there are a lot more younger scholars such as myself but uh, yeah. many others who are also doing this research and or utilizing the kind of uh, internet tools and stuff like that um and they're going beyond the kind of standard histories of science so one of my friends sarah kidway she works on science and islam in the 19th century which is a fascinating topic because she's bringing out stuff that nobody has really done um and um so the stuff that she's bringing out is is absolutely amazing so there's there's certainly new shifts in our field uh, we've gone past past the kind of um like debunking the conflict thesis um yeah. although we still need to continue to do that now we're at the stage where we're trying to go more global um and we're trying to become more intersectional in the sense that it's not just about science it's not just about religion but it's about all of those topics um, across the globe, science, religion, race, empire, gender, class, disability, um, you know, political views, anything else I've missed out. Um, that's really where um, the field, I would say, is is kind of going now. Um, and for, obviously, you know, from a Christian perspective, then, the last thing that I would, would say is that um, I think that what the field is doing it is quite it's quite beneficial to the Christian um if they can come to kind of understand I mean what ways Christianity has helped with the development of modern science, which I realize is something we didn't actually get to kind of touch on. No, no, um, we didn't really talk about how what it what 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 it done what it did well. No, yeah, that's that's <laughs> just just kind of clocked. But that's that's totally fine. There's there's you know lots of material on that. But I, the one thing I could say um at least from a general perspective is that it's certainly true to say that christianity played an instrumental role in the rise of modern western science um for various reasons um and that should encourage at least encourage christians to you know participate in science more so um yeah. or to feel more confident in doing so um because there really is not that idea of conflict inherent conflict um that idea is just not true it's it's totally false mm. but just that I now got you know give me a question now. So I mean, if you if you look back at a lot of those, um, you look at the science. You know, here should we talk about the scientific revolution? You know, we talk about Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, etc. Were these people incidentally Christian uh, who happened to to make uh, you know big you know major scientific developments, or was their Christianity actually um, instrumental to those oh. developments? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, the latter, certainly true. Um, of course, people will make the argument that everybody was Christian around that time, which is true. 
Um, but what you have to understand is the question then, why did, you know, science, modern science as we know in the West, explode around that period? And the reason was really theological. So in short, going back to Peter Harrison's argument um, in a number of the books, his main argument is that the idea of the fall of man was actually what led to the rise of science. Um, so the idea for a lot of these Protestants um, was the idea that um, Adam had this kind of, Adam in the Bible, so in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, um, the story of creation, um, had this what's known as Adamic knowledge about the whole universe, which is why he could name all the animals and he had this union with God. When they sinned, Adam began to lose that information and humans began to lose that union with God and that understanding of the universe. So for Protestants, one of the reasons why, you know, science, modern science, I should say, exploded in this period was that very reason of they were trying to reclaim what was known as Adamic knowledge. And the way to do that right. was to become priests of nature, i.e. if we can describe the universe, if we can understand the universe, then we're regaining that knowledge um, of, of God and we're re regaining that kind of communication and that unity with God. So that's one of the re just one of the reasons. And then um, there are multiple other reasons as to the rise of kind of um, you know, science in this period, and it you can you, you can show show a direct link between their Christian beliefs um, and the rise of of modern science, or Protestant Christian beliefs, let's say, and the rise of modern science. Um, so yeah, that's that's just one of the you know reasons. Interesting, because I, I think that's often one of the the criticisms that people just say it's sort of a an accident of history rather than mm. being any sort of causal reason for the for 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 modern science developing at that particular point point in yeah. history so i do i do think that's quite important thing. it's got I me should, thinking oh, go yeah. on. no go on you go i i want to i, I want to make sure i add one more actually which i do think is important I'll, I'll try and be brief with this um this is another reason for this kind of rise of of science is one that one um professor in my department in ucl mentioned it mentions in his book called thrifty science um, and it's, it's, it's this idea of thrifty science, which was also very common um, in the early modern period, so 17th and 18th century um, England, he, he argues, but you can extend this kind of to um, Europe as well. And what he argues is that experimentation was just a common part of the everyday thing that people did. And this includes um, women as well. So the household was a place of experimentation because laboratories and universities and all that stuff um, or laboratories in general were not really a thing for science until the 19th century so prior to then experiments were done at home so most of these figures that we think about um newton Boyle, so forth and so on they were doing most of their experiments at home but so were their sisters so were their wives so were their kids um and this i think the reason why i want to bring this up is because again it brings in another aspect that historians usually don't talk about which is how females um, and you know children, sisters, and all those people also helped um, with the rise of modern science. So this concept of thrifty science, and it came and and the reason why it links to Christianity is because the idea that he points out um, is that the idea was that everything that we have, um, everything that we have comes from God. So scriptures yeah. like um, I think it's First James seventeen, which says every good and perfect gift comes from above, um, and it was those ideas that um, shapes this experimental nature. So we shouldn't waste um, objects that we have in the home, but rather we should experiment on them and utilize them as best as possible. So you might um, have an object, 
for one use and you might convert it into a second use and then a third use right it of now where we have like a plastic cup and we'll use it and we throw it away in the early modern period um simon where would argue that people didn't throw things away as we do today they would repurpose it or reuse it right that was the idea of thrifty science but it goes back to a christian um root and then some shifts happened in the 19th century things we become more specialist and we start throwing things away with the industri um, industrialization um, yeah. but that also leads to specialist science in the 19th century so that's another thing i, I would like to point out yeah that's it that's interesting i've never heard of that um that idea so that's yeah that, I'll, I'll have to look into that a bit more it sounds fascinating um mm. the one thing i didn't uh, again another book plug here have you heard oh. have you, have, um, you read rodney stark's book um for the glory oh, of god I haven't read it, but I've heard a lot about it. <laughs> yeah. Glory of God, how, how monotheism led to the Reformation, science, witch hunts, and the end of slavery. Um, mm. And that, that's, that's fascinating. And he's, um, he's a sociologist by training, but I think all... Yeah, I think he isn't, but he's, he does, he writes a, a, he's a fantastic historian as well. Um, so that's, that's one that's definitely worth it. That, that, that's one I've reread a couple of times as well. And that's, that's ah. a fascinating read. For the, but that's um, because his, weirdly enough historians actually critique that now <laughs> oh really yeah so one of the issues with the book is that he places he does that he makes the mistake of placing too much emphasis on christianity yeah um, i think I, that that's that's fair that's that is fair yeah. i think he's probably uh, if i'm if i'm right at least his more recent writings he has been a little bit more tempered on on, okay, on, 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 on on that but yeah I, I would agree that i think that is a yeah. um and I think that's where a lot of the stuff on apologetic. I think a lot of people read Rodney yes. Stark yeah. and took that as right. This is this is the standard view. Um, whereas what you're what you're right in terms of there is it's a little bit more nuanced. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. I think that's absolutely fair. But I think his a lot of what he said. I think that book is still even with that that said. I think it's still a really interesting book to um, yeah. to read at least as a, as a counter um, point to to a lot of the. Silly historical claims that that, that have been made. But no, I definitely read slaying the dragons. I reckon you'll you'll mm. find that you'll 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 really enjoy that. That's that's a really well. I I can't think of any criticism that that's a fantastic. <laughs> nice. book. Um, but great. Well, I think we're we're an hour of forty five. Uh, I, I I would be happy to chat for long, but I think it's it's quarter to ten. We're, yeah. we're both it's getting a bit late. Um, yes. I've really really enjoyed chatting with you, Nathan. It's nice to to get mm. to chat with you in. Well, if not in person on screen yeah, uh, and, and, and we'll have to, I'm sure we'll have to do this again uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you have you back on uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch the same screen and just uh, and, and fit, close up so thank you everyone for listening in um, please subscribe uh, share your video uh, thank you again to our our patreon um, People that support us via Patreon that allow us to uh, to um, to stream via Streamyard. Um, that we're, we're really thankful for that. Uh, we've got some really good um, uh, um, guests coming on in the next the next month, running up to Christmas. So we uh, we look for we'll, we'll, we'll put in some more information on, uh, on that soon. And uh, thanks again for your questions and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. And we'll uh, we'll catch you in a couple of weeks. All right. Take care. And thanks again. Thank you for listening. 
and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback. Get in touch, let us know what you think. If you really enjoyed the content and want to support it, find us on patreon.com.